0: Turn your architectural designs into stunning, immersive experiences with Enscape. This innovative tool integrates seamlessly with your design software to bring your ideas to life in real-time 3D and VR. With Enscape, you'll experience instant rendering, have the ability to make design changes on the fly, and present your projects in stunning detail. Ideal for architects, designers, and anyone passionate about visual storytelling in architecture, dive into the new era of design visualization with Enscape. Visit Enscape3D.com to learn more. ARCHICAD is the official BIM software of the Entree Architect community. ARCHICAD BIM software enables design, collaboration, visualization, and project delivery no matter the project size or complexity. With flexible licensing options and a dedicated support team to guide us along the way, ARCHICAD is an ideal choice for firms and projects of any size. I encourage you to reach out and talk to the folks at Graphisoft by visiting our own dedicated webpage at graphisoft.com slash US slash Architect. There's even an exclusive special offer waiting for our Entree Architect community. Go now to graphisoft.com slash US slash Entree Architect and see how Graphisoft is positioned to help make your architecture firm a success. That's graphisoft.com slash US slash Entree Architect. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entre Architect podcast where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise, all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. Melody Farris Jackson and Matthew Brooks, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. Melody Farris Jackson is a visual artist and designer that works between many scales and types of spatial design. Since joining the design firm Nomi, she has specialized in the development of branded environments, using both architectural and fabricated elements to create unique and custom experiences in architecture, form furniture and installations to campus planning, all of those things. Um, As a designer, she has worked on creative concepts for Nike, Siemens, Toyota, Keurig, and many other known brands. And Matthew Brooks is the owner and founder of Nomi Design and his comprehensive body of work spans a wide variety of project types and sizes informed by his experience working with Herbert Beckard, a former partner of the Bauhaus master, Marcel Breuer, who just fun fact, my wife worked on a Marcel Breuer house in in Katona, New York. That was fun. Um, And Matthew believes that architecture is a holistic practice that should be environmentally socially and financially sustainable so let's let's get into it i I, I love your firm I love what you do <laughs> I love the brand I love the the uh, the risks you take and I want to dive into that and, and not only share what you do but I, I want to know how you do it which is I think what a lot of designers and architects when they see firms like yours they're like, oh I wish I could do that." You know, I could never do that. So I want to understand how you do that. How did you, how did you get there? But before we do that, um, I want to know how you both started. And I want to start with Melody. Um, what's your origin story? When did you discover your passion for what you do and who or what inspired you to do it?
1: Thank you, Mark. We're just happy to be here today talking with you on Entree Architect, first of all. And um, I guess traveling back in time, the young Melody, age six or seven, I just loved the draw. And I think it started with me uh, drawing and working through projects and keeping sketchbooks. So I found myself um, in architecture school at a place that was very comfortable, fun and intriguing and engaging and working through architecture school. I've always been attracted to the creative projects, things that push the limits and boundaries of what architecture could do, what it could be Uh, and thinking really past buildings, what architecture could, how it could be a, make a difference in a spatial environment. I dreamed about uh, the space race with the space shuttles back when I was in middle school yeah. and just excited that the space race is back up and running again. Yeah.
2: Isn't it exciting? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I think, you know, for, this is uh, my young self, I grew up in an art uh, in a house that uh, was designed by, or the additions were designed by an architect uh, here locally, a fantastic architect, uh, modern. And there was always uh, material on site as I was growing up. And uh, I was always making stuff. I was a born maker, I think. And um, so that coupled with, you know, when I, before I even went into architecture school, I worked in a woodshop, just my young self did. And I learned some, you know, very important You know, skills, you know, and and not only on just how to make a piece of wood look beautiful, but also how to manage different types of situations and installations and things like that. So uh, I love being an architect, but I think if there was a professional title, I'd be a professional maker.
0: So started in a workshop. How old were you in the workshop?
2: I was 18 when I started in that workshop. So I d- deferred going to college and thought maybe I'd just try out, uh, you know, making stuff first. Yeah.
0: So so a maker your whole life, you said, um, what does that mean? Like, what are the kind of things that you did as a child that sort of makes you identify as a maker as a kid? I think I'm a
2: little bit of an inventor at heart. Mm-hmm. I, I remember one project uh, when I was probably seven or eight, maybe a little bit older, and we had uh the place where I lived uh used uh uncut or cut limestone for walls and for the house itself and so we had this very long, probably a hundred foot uh long hundred feet long by four feet wide uh, sort of a a site wall down uh on the side of our house and it and it stepped down and had these large steps and for some reason we had uh cast iron pipe sitting out there for it seemed like ages and all these wood blocks. And I decided, well, I'm going to make a Kool-Aid water fountain down this whole wall. And so I devised this whole thing where, you know, I put the hose on one end and somehow hooked it up to that pipe and then somehow mixed the Kool-Aid in and uh, then directed the Kool-Aid down the steps with all the wood parts. So, um, and there was always, there were always things around uh, my house at that point uh, that really, i would i would that that was my thing you know that's you know melody's thing was sketching my thing was you know working with my hands and putting things together
0: Were, were you both encouraged as children to pursue that were were your were your parents creative and you know similar did they sort of see that in you and sort of uh cultivate it
1: absolutely i my mother is a very inventive person who who problem solves and and comes up with a lot of uh, problem solving solutions to things and just thinks in a very creative way. Um, She was a teacher uh, is a retired teacher currently, and uh, she expressed her creativity in that way. However, I was much more of a, of a maker also like Matthew of drawing and painting and and creating creations. I guess you could say multimedia creations that, um, but I was very much encouraged as a child um, to pursue art and to draw and to think uh, and make things.
2: What about you? Also, Ma- I'd have to say, I mean, my parents maybe didn't encourage that that much, but it wasn't until years later that my father uh, handed me a pretty much a, a black trash bag of drawings that I had done when I was young. I, I have to give some credit to um, the Montessori school that I went to uh, when I was in preschool and in my first few years of elementary school because they, they really, um, uh, embrace, uh, being creative, creative problem solving, uh, sort of finding your own way, figuring out how to get there, um, being independent. And I, I don't think I'd be the same person, uh, without that type of education either. In addition, also one of my very good friends who I went to school with, uh, lived in a house, a brand new house, uh, done by a sort of a, a locally renowned architect who's now he works in Berkeley, uh, Herb, uh, Herb Green, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and this house that they lived in was so um, – it was so out there. It had each bedroom for the kids had a loft in it, you know, where these days you probably wouldn't do that because it's unsafe, and there's a good reason <laughs> right. for that because, you know, we used to jump out of the loft into the yeah. bed. Um, <laughs> they man. also – it was also like this three or four story house that had this, this crazy uh, top floor attic office, which was, you know, you'd climb up these stairs and it was just a, you know, it was at that point too that I understood that architecture is so much more than just a, a four walls and a roof. You know, it can be this, this uh, sort of exciting journey to these new spaces where you You've never experienced a house like that, and I think that had a lot to do with what what I, why I do what I do today.
1: And just a quick follow up on that, Mark. Um, I grew up on a farm, and I, I contribute growing up on a farm with a lot of the imagination yeah. that was developed from uh, wandering through barns, inventing worlds in my own mind. I didn't have a lot of neighbors around me, so um, I was a kid that. You know I had to rely on my own imagination to uh, to entertain myself, and I feel like that freedom of thought and the power of possibility is something that I still experience today, and um, I'm very thankful for that
0: yeah yeah i've had I've spoken to m- several farmers on the show, uh people who have grown up on farms and and often that is a um because of the environment right that that it's sort of a maker environment, right you by default right mm-hmm. that that when things break, you fix them. Right, and, and you're out there and that's part of a job of being a farmer's maintenance and mending and making sure that things are working. Um, and so that's very much, that's a common influence uh, for architects who have grown up on farms. That, that's where that started. Um, what was the seed for Nomi? So as a kid, you both have this, this, this creative um, uh, background and went through design school and architecture school. And, and so where did the concept of Nomi come from what was the seed that started it and how did you actually end up launching it
2: well it's kind of a it's kind of a sad little story but it 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 turns into something better um you know i i live in an old house in downtown lexington and uh actually the second house but you know i found that i didn't really want to i'm thrifty and i i don't want to pay people to do things that i know i can do myself yeah which it's probably bad, but, um, <laughs> there are many but, of us out there, Matthew. Yeah, <laughs> but, uh, you know, so, you know, I want when I fix up a house, I really want to do as much as I can myself, because it's really hard to find somebody who's sympathetic to that quality and that type of craftsmanship. And so that's what I started doing. I started making things for this house and, you know, I was in this tiny little basement and we ended up getting a second house, which required a bigger basement, which, you know, finally, I was like, I've got to get these tools out of this place and I, gotta, I have to get them in a, in a real serious kind of situation. So somebody just happened. It was sort of just intervention. Somebody called me one day and said, you know, would you be interested in running this shop space? And I said, well, that'd be great. And so I went to go look at it and it had all these shop. I mean, like semi-professional shop equipment in it. And I said, well, what are you doing with all that stuff? that's here. And he goes, well, I'm just going to have to move it out in the storage. And I said, well, you know, why don't we figure out a a good way to do this? And so we figured out a, uh, we negotiated a way where the tools, the equipment stayed there and I made stuff. And so I'm at this point, I'm, I had bought the, my first company. And, uh, so I bought my first company and I bought a house near about the same time and started this shop where I can work on my house. And, uh, And then just sort of a series of events started happening, one of which I'll get to, which involves Melody, uh, but also involves a couple sort of projects. And those projects were, they didn't come to us for fabrication, but I saw the opportunity to say, I've got this shop, maybe we can participate in making something so we don't have to go through that sort of process of or this negotiated process through um, construction drawings to see who can make what, or can you make it the way that we design it? Or, right. you know, there's always that point as an architect where you're not hundred percent sure what you draw or put on a piece of paper, whether somebody can actually make it. I, I know you can, there; you can find somebody to make it, but, but it's either going to cost a lot of money or they're not close to you. So um, so I thought to myself, well, why don't we start making, you know, some of these small things. And uh, you know the first project was a nonprofit small business incubator that required a hundred desks, and I thought to myself, hmm, I bet we can make those desks. And so it was sort of a challenge, right? How could you make a desk? How could you make a desk for one person out of one sheet of plywood? Because that's all we could afford. Otherwise, they'd go to IKEA to get all the desks, right? And so we were able to design a, a partner's desk that took one sheet of plywood per per person. And then we were able to design the, and we put those on a CNC machine and cut them out sort of and mass produced them. And then we used the cutouts as a wall piece, as a, what would you call those?
1: Decorative wall panels.
2: Decorative wall panels that were sandwiched in between uh, a translucent plastic wall panels so there really was no waste so it was kind of a win-win for everybody um so that was kind of the first project that pushed us over the edge to kind of think about getting a cnc machine but it was really a project that melody had come to me and we weren't working together at the time uh and i'll kind of let you tell that story
1: right um I had been working and teaching at the University of Kentucky, and, and currently Matthew and I have been continuing to teach and, and work at the University of Kentucky, which is fantastic as far as research and development for creative problems and creative projects. Um, at the time, I, I came to I called I called Matthew when I had a client make a very strange request of me to design and build some extremely uh, innovative. And interesting furniture pieces to to go into uh, really the trade show environment. I turned it down at first and said, I just don't know if I can design trade show pieces because I think of them as flimsy and and maybe not really of a quality that I would want to spend time trying to figure out but they assured me that they wanted them to be wood and heavy and whatever we designed and wanted them to be. So the, the opportunity was really a, a, a fantastic one, but I didn't know who could build the thing. So I called Matthew on a whim and said, Matthew, you got this new shop. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I don't really know what you can do, but I know you're creative and I know you build things really well, but maybe we could work together on this and figure out how to get it done. And the project pushed us. It, it definitely did. We didn't have enough room in the shop so, we had to move things out on the sidewalk while things were getting worked done, because it was a lot of things a lot of pieces and a lot of components to this project. And um, twelve foot tables and things of this nature, very, very specific to the to the trade show and to the company. And it was a challenge. There were several young people working in the office, and having just graduated from University of Kentucky, they came to it with a different approach to architecture. I mean, Matthew and I graduated together, so we are of the same era. But the young folks did have more of a fabrication mindset and were excited to be part of something that was different. And they really helped us um, move through and getting some of these pieces made in a short amount of time, not enough space, really didn't know exactly what we were doing on it. But it was a big success. And I think it led us both to think that there's room in architecture and in an architectural practice to start thinking beyond the static walls of just buildings. And I think when NOMI was formed, um, right at that time, it was an opportunity to think about architecture, fabrication, and then what are the, those new possibilities out there for architects to stretch their businesses and stretch their design influence into these areas, which eventually led us to the mobile architecture that we'll be moving into. But along the way, we could have never gotten to that point without having gone through the fabrication element, because I think that's where the creative problem solving of designing something, making it, and then having that, that ingenuity and and kind of that uh, utility element of being able to put things together and deliver them on a project like we did on the, the big first uh, right. trade show job.
2: But it was also about all the right people too. I mean, it was, you know, it was about you, it was about me, it was about Jeremy, who's our director in the shop You know, without that group, it wouldn't have been as successful Um, just because there's there's just it just like how the project came and how the shop kind of was there. Everything sort of aligned to that. You know, I think there's a lot of success stories where all the stars line in the beginning. Yeah. And this and and something this this thing happens. Right. And I think that's kind of I look back on it and it kind of gives me a little bit of a wow. I can't believe we did that. I actually look back on it and think, I can't believe I was that stupid, you know, (laughs) taking those kind of risks. But, you know, I think that, um, you have to be somewhat naive sometimes, you know, you have to go into it blind. You can't always control or want to control everything. And, um, and, you know, I think that's been the difficulty in trying to manage what an architecture and fabrication company is.
0: Yeah. Which is unique. Right. And so you have to sort of define what that is and, and educate some clients on what you do that that as an architecture firm, people have a very specific idea of what what an architecture firm is and what they do. Nomi is not that, right? Nomi is very different than that. Uh, You do architecture, you do fabrication in terms of furniture and objects. I saw custom school buses for a STEM education program, trade show designs, everything, right? It's all of it, uh, including the architecture and the the furniture. Um, And so, and it sounds like that sort of happened because the right people were in the right place at the right time and that's what was born out of that collection of people and things and time is that right exactly exactly
1: yeah. and we had a group of people i mean starting out with Matthew um that we love a challenge and we still love a challenge our our group today has grown and and changed complexion a little bit but we all love the challenge of figuring something new and unusual out. And as much as we still have a very, you know, a thriving architectural practice that does do buildings, yeah. we get those occasional strange phone calls, Mark, on the, that, that say, hey, we, we had an idea about something and we didn't know who else to call.
2: <laughs> so yeah. we're
1: calling you. And well, that's
2: how, that's how the first STEM bus came about. Yes. You know, honestly, and it wouldn't have happened had we not done all that mm-hmm. all that other stuff ahead of time.
0: Yeah. right. I, I, d- by doing all of that, And then clearly communicating that that's what you do, because you do do that. I mean, if you look at the website, it's very clear that this is a unique situation and and the work that you do is very unique. Um, How intentional was that? How intentional was the brand that's built around Nomi in order to attract the people who know that they should call you for that project that they couldn't call anybody
2: else for? Well, I I think as a lesson for architects, and I'm going to kind of get on my, my, uh, what is a Podium.
1: Soapbox. My soapbox. soapbox.
2: Go there. Go step right
0: up on the soapbox. I'm going there with you.
2: <laughs> but the first thing you got to do is you got to you have to have the mentality. You always have to go in and sell design first. You can't ever, you have to set that expectation with a client that no matter what you do, that you're going to make something beautiful. And that's what we do. I mean, that's the first thing that we do. We say, You've come to us, or we we are coming to this project. And even on projects where I'd say, We've been in interviews with school districts, K through 12 school districts, where we used to decide, okay, we're going to compete with, with the other two or three architects that are, we're going to compete directly with them. So now we don't worry about who they are anymore or what they do or what we sell, what we do and we sell design. Yeah. And, and if that client wants design, we can do that. And then we can talk about all the other soft stuff, fees and all that. But, you know, I think that that's the really mentality of we don't sell architecture, we don't sell solar, we don't sell sustainability, we don't sell, but we sell smart design. And that's kind of our our main thing is smart design. And that can embody lots of different things. And that's one of our sort of branding strategies is design and smart design.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's very successful because that's exactly what you see when you look at anything that's coming out of your firm and the website, the work that you do is all screaming that. Let's take a quick break to say thank you to our sponsors for their support of this episode. This episode is brought to you by RCAT.com. We all have that one story, that one project that had such a unique situation that it required a solution that you had rarely considered before. We share these stories in private professional circles with our friends and our colleagues, but there has never been a collection of these stories of conflict and triumph all in one place, until now. Detailed is a podcast series that features architects, engineers, builders, and manufacturers who share their insights and expertise as they highlight some of the most complex, interesting, and oddball building conditions that they have ever encountered and the ingenuity it took to solve them. Join host Sharice Lakeside, a.k.a. CSI Kraken, a senior specifications writer at RDH Building Science as she uncovers lessons learned to help you navigate similar challenges that may arise in your next project. Detailed, an original podcast by ArtCat. Listen and subscribe right now at artcat.com slash podcast. That's arcat.com slash podcast. A-R-C-A-T dot com slash podcast. Detailed. Every building has a story. Please visit our sponsors today and thank them. Thank them for supporting you, the entre Architect community. From what I see and from hearing your stories, a lot of your success came from taking the risk. That that there was a risk. This could not. This might possibly fail, but you do it anyway because it sounds like even the the firm was born that way. Um, And much of the work that you're doing is going is clearly risky to 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 design it and then pull it off. How intentional is that? Is that something that's in your mind that, you know, that's just what we do, or is it just inherent in who you are as people?
1: Well, I'll just use an example. Uh, We'll we'll talk about the very first stem bus, which. We got the phone call to to do the first STEM bus, which was uh, a school board and a county that wanted to uh, convert uh, an existing school bus into a mobile STEM lab. And they didn't know who else to call. They called us and uh, we thought about it. We were very excited about the the problem solving prospects of trying to figure it out. We knew we could craft things well. Jeremy and the, the folks in the shop are just exquisite at making beautiful things. We felt like that we could creatively and Design this with flexibility. So we weren't worried about that, but we didn't know there were so many other unknowns about it um, and specific things about a moving piece of architecture that we had never done before. So it was risky, but we said we wanted to do it. But we were very upfront with the client at the time and we said, we don't know how to do it. So you got to be on the journey with us. It might take longer, it might cost a little bit more than we think. Uh, There's a lot of things we don't know. And we'll be very open and honest and transparent with you, and we want you along on the ride with us. And using that, the first bus was a little rough. I mean, we we didn't know exactly um, so many things, and we we made a few mistakes along the way that we were able to fix and 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 redo them. So at the end of the day, the bus was a tremendous success. The client loved it. it. It operated well, but we were exhausted. And it's like, wow, the next one we do, we're going to do a few things differently. We did a few things the hard way. And I think there's some ways we can improve our efficiency on doing them. So when the, we got the call for the next bus, we had already improved our methodology about the first one from the lessons learned. And it went so much smoother. And then by the time we did the third bus, you know, again, we were continually to continuing to improve on our methods. And each bus has been very different. They haven't been cookie cutter, similar uh, things that we just design it once and just plop it into buses. Each school district has a diff- slightly different needs and wants.
2: And a different brand.
1: And a different brand. So we've been able, though, to working through uh, thinking about moving architecture, getting past four static, static walls. Yeah. We've been able to come to terms with some experiences that have really helped us. So, But it's risky. You're right. Yeah. Um, you have to be upfront with the client when they ask you for a strange, unusual project and be able to be uh, just very honest that there's going to be one step forward and maybe two steps back at times until we get where we're going.
2: You know, but I, if if I would have had the conversation with myself and said, okay, how much money can I, can I afford to lose on this project? The very first one, you know, because we've got such a huge learning curve on it. Yeah. Luckily, I don't have those conversations with myself very often. <laughs> Cause if I'd had, I may not have done it, but I think that, you know, if there's one thing I've learned over the past seven years of know me and I've owned my own business for 14 is that you have to take the long, long view. You know, you can't take the, the short position on things. Right. And, you know, I think you have to, you have to take those risks, but you have to take them. Uh, those have to be as calculated as making money too. you know, that you have to know to take a risk in order to, to, you know, jump up to the next level. And I think, you know, we've done, we, we were, luckily we were able to do that on that one. And, uh, you know, the, the next three after that, and we've also done an upfit for an RV, um, you know, I think those all, you know, benefited from that initial sort of risk.
0: Yeah. Are, are there projects in order to serve those clients and and serve those projects? and to have enough capacity to pull those projects off. Are you turning other work away?
2: You know, I think it's interesting because the way that we manage the, the business, uh, because the shop isn't a separate entity from the architecture, it's all under the same company. Um, And we typically, uh, we with only one exception and and our business manager, everybody else is uh, trained in architecture and, So we've found over the past seven years that it's incredibly important to make sure that um, we we hire architects, we hire young architects, and that they can work in architecture office or they can cross over into the shop. And so if you want to have those two skills, you can. I'm not saying everybody does. But if everybody has to go, you know, get in there and do a bunch of finishing and sand a bunch of stuff, we can we can do that as an entire office, you know. But typically, we have two or three people just running the shop. The thing that's really I guess important to say about the shop, though, is that we only make what we design. We don't, and that I think that's a big distinction of who we are because we don't seek um, uh, other people's work or design. We don't, and I don't mean this to sound in a sort of being snobby about it, but we have enough work and we can generate enough in order for us to stay quite busy in the shop for, well, for the past seven years we have. So uh, there are a few exceptions to that. We love collaborating with people and love collaborating with other architects. But, you know, again, that's more of a situation where we'll come in and they'll say, this is the problem that we need to solve. Can you all design that problem or design for that problem? And I think that that's where you know, we might design something for, but it would be a collaborative effort and not just, right. we're not bidding on something against, you know, two or three other people. That's not typically what we do.
0: Yeah. And Melody, you said you were talking about your mom as a problem solver. You said you identified yourself as a problem solver. Very much Nomi's brand is about problem solving. Your clients are coming to you and saying, Hey, I have this, this thing I want to do. I don't know how to do it. There's a problem there. Can you help solve that problem and and create a solution and so that's certainly part of your brand as well Um, how many how many people describe the firm a little bit and how it how it's structured
2: well we currently have about 12 total people uh two of those are strictly dedicated to the shop Uh, we've got one business manager and then nine of us on the architecture side or the design side but you know melody and i participate a lot in the shop Mm -hmm. so um you know, as far as sort of getting things to take off, doing initial designs, uh participating in the sort of logistics you know that uh, we don't get in there and sand and 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 cut as much. I don't do that as much as I used to but but I can still participate in that.
1: we wear a lot of hats i mean with a with a with a very innovative and and uh interesting type of of firm that we have, we, we have to. so, And that's just what Matthew was talking about. We hire folks that like to do interesting design-oriented work and people that are excited to have a week in the shop or a week in design. So uh, we're able to do a lot of crossover with that. And I think that helps us stay flexible and adaptive to the types of projects that come in the door and the ones that we really want to do.
0: Your firm is a, is a modern master builder.
1: Yeah, and, yeah, I kind of like that. Yeah. yeah, we like that. And we, we like to think of ourselves. Most of us have been very inspired by by the Bauhaus and by uh, Jersey Devil and by those that were Rural yeah. Studio by Samuel Mockby and, and those that have taken the applied uh, arts of making, taken an architecture to the applied arts of making. And that's we really love that that connection. We feel like that distinguishes us in the architectural landscape. And it's really contributed to the way we design even the architectural buildings we work on. We think differently because of that mentality and that mindset. It, It frees our minds to think about buildings and how those buildings would be made through structural systems and skinning systems and thinking of the building as an object and back zooming it back out as an urban collective and moving back and forth from scales has been very informative and and I think pretty critical to how we've designed things here.
2: But a majority of our fabricated stuff has to do with branding,
1: mm-hmm. you know,
2: enhancing, uh, enhancing a client's brand. And I think that that goes hand in hand with maybe how we also design buildings. You know, that's, that's part of the first conversation that we have. You know, who are you? What do you do? Yeah. You know, how can we enhance your business by, you know, really good design?
1: And that's the part of the the firm that I love. I love to to meet with folks and find out what their company's about, and then help them design a very custom environment that that explores those spatial possibilities of of describing and emotionally feeling what is their brand architecturally.
0: You er, you mentioned earlier that you have a business manager. The business, from my experience, setting up this this podcast, and um, just before we started this podcast, there was an example of it it seems like your firm is very well run as a business, that the structures and the systems are properly in place. Um, How did that happen? Because architecture doesn't always do that. They don't always focus on the business. And it seems like not only are you designing amazing architecture and and fabrication and, and design projects, but your business seems to be doing well as well. So how, how did that happen? And, and what, what are you doing to make that happen? I think the only,
2: the best way to, to answer that question is you learn from your mistakes. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, I, I think that, you know, I didn't go to school for business. Um, neither did my business manager. My business manager really just kind of manages me, but. Uh, um, Goes back to the risk. Yes. exactly you know and i think you know you have to have a sounding board i i'll be honest with you you know i had a another business 7 years ago where i had a business partner and i think that that relationship is really important and if you don't have that relationship with a business partner you have to have somebody that you trust in order to make sound decisions because you know i'll be honest with you i make i make decisions based on more emotional like what i want it Like I will, I will do anything it takes to make something beautiful, right? And we can't always do that, right? We have to sort of draw a line in the sand and say uh, we got to stop, right? Because we can't keep spending money on this, or we can't, you know, we can't buy new this new hundred thousand dollar machine, or we can't do this, or we can't do that, right? And it's always good to have that sounding board, and I think that's that's a really important aspect to any business is that. You have to have that uh, balance, and and I'll be the first to admit that I am not in the center. I am definitely on one side. I'm I'm a very liberal thinker as far as uh, just I gotta I gotta make it work. I gotta make yeah. it happen, and then I have to have somebody else on the other side saying, "Wait a second, you know, I, you need to rethink that a little bit." But you know, I, I had to say that you you, you do. I, some people may not learn from their mistakes, but I certainly have learned from my mistakes.
1: And I think Mark, too, it's it's just interesting that we have two different types of deliverables here. We have obviously the traditional drawing sets from the architecture side of things where we're producing contract documents and going through all the motions to make architecture and to go through um all of those processes. But then the other side has a deliverable that's a thing, right? It's a, it's a it's a chair, it's a table, it's a installation, it's a It's a school bus. It's a it's it's something that is tangible that then just drives off into the sunset or gets delivered out to a place. So when you have two different kinds of deliverables, you know, early in our in in the firm's uh, in in the firm's life, it was a challenge to try to manage. How do we how do we bill for these things? How do we work through uh, billing for the fabrication side means that we have upfront costs to get materials to get started, which is a very different mindset than working on contract doc- documents. So
2: professional services. Yes, yeah, yeah. and
1: professional services. So all of that has been has been an interesting journey as well. But I, I think you know, I'm grateful to be part of this group. Um, this is a group of free thinkers, of, of think tank. We just I, I'm blown away by the talent of the young folks that come in with crazy ideas, which are fantastic. Uh, you know, we we watch uh, a whole host of young architects across the nation and across the world that are pushing the limits on what architecture can be, and I feel like in our little corner of Kentucky, we're trying to push those limits too, towards uh, architecture that can move, architecture that can be built and touched and felt. And Take with you. It can be taken with you, and and I think what what made us really excited to get to talk to you today is just to to try to encourage people um, to, to think beyond the four walls of architecture. I think architects have been trained in such an interesting way that we have abilities and skills and influences that can make so many other things better through the way that we think and the mindset that we have. So as I see architects stretching and stretching out into other disciplines and fields through architecture, it's really exciting.
0: Yeah. It is, because we are living in a, we were living, just generally, we are living in an amazing period in history of the world um, to have all of the, the technology that we have and the and the creativity and the internet that allows us to explore and learn on demand whenever we want to, and to be able to connect with anybody we want in real time, anywhere in the world. Uh, we are living in an amazing world and our profession is, is starting to reflect that uh, architecture has traditionally been a laggard in everything they do. They're usually decades behind the rest of the world in terms of catching <laughs> up with technology and other things. Um, but you see that shift. You see um, the next generation of architects coming in, native entrepreneurs, native makers. Um, they are they are um, native te- technologists, right? They they have all this ready to go. And what and and to have. Firms like yours that are pushing the limits of what architecture is by definition um, and expanding architecture and architectural services and the definition of architect. Very important that you are an architect doing things way beyond designing and building buildings and you're still an architect doing architecture. Um, And that's a very important distinction. and, and, And I'm glad that you're out there talking about it that you're coming on podcasts and, and out there uh, being featured in Architect Magazine talking about that specific topic because that needs to be discussed more. Um, because if we don't, architects go away, <laughs> right? That if we don't expand our definition and our role and our responsibility and take on those other roles and responsibilities, other companies and other brands and other industries will gladly take that from us. Uh, and so I'm glad you're out there talking about those things and doing doing the work that you do.
2: Well, I think one of the things that sort of inspires me a lot, it, Melody talks about the idea of how can architects start thinking about um, space, uh, uh, colonizing other planets, and what yeah. does that look like? I think you know one of the, the things that Melody and I talk about a lot is, and, and we may never see it in our lifetimes, but I think, again, you have to look at that long game of architecture, right? Somebody and,
0: needs to plant the seed.
2: Right. Mm-hmm. And what does that become? Right. What is that? You know, I think if we get back to mobile architecture, I certainly have a different idea than maybe Melody has about mobile architecture. But I think they're both the same in saying, is it really going to be sustainable to make a hundred thousand, one million square foot buildings, office buildings uh, in the future? Or is is really the future going to be um, more about these sort of spaces that we that we take with us, you know, and that, you know, we do like what we're doing right now is that it's all remote, right? right why right. Why do we, ha- I understand the the social, social sort of issues about not being together, but but also, you know, can we start making the spaces that we work and live in more about kind of how the human body is made? Can we start thinking about windows differently? Can we start thinking about ventilation differently? Can we, I mean, even in our own sort of, let's call it woodwork, right? you know, how we're striving to to understand how we can make even woodwork more s- or smarter, right? So how can you take a standard desk or a table or a wall panel that we make or whatever it is that we make and how can you make those types of objects, those things that we, we relied on craftsmen to make and that we make, how can we infuse this idea of technology into it? How can we be different than... And that's really the thing that I, I think that tries that we try to really push is why are we different than any other woodshop? You know, that's a really tricky kind of question for us to answer. And I think it's because we're, we're not into production. We only design what we only make what we design and we're continually thinking about how can we make these things uh, more interesting or smarter or add technology to it. Right. So, you know, I think it's all those types of questions. I think it's the questioning that you have to always kind of go after. You can't stop thinking about, uh, you can't be satisfied with who you are right now. You've got to think about who you might be, you know, a hundred years down the road, even though you might not be here. You know, you just don't, you got to leave that. You have to leave, you have to leave a legacy, you know? And I think, you know, we're all about, in this company, we're all about leaving a stamp or a a mark um, in some way. We, We not, we may not have done that yet, but you know, what can we leave as a mark uh, to our legacy as we sort of pass this on or uh, it becomes something else? You know, I don't know. That's that's the that's the key thing. Right.
1: I like to challenge our students, Mark, and I have for a long time. I've been teaching at UK off and on for a while, and I like to challenge architecture students and tell them. And at first, when I tell them this, they they laugh. Everyone kind of laughs it off. But towards the end of the semester and maybe even towards the end of their architectural education, I think many of them start to believe it's true because I totally believe it's true. And I know Matthew believes it's true. And I, I you probably feel it's true too. I feel like design can change the world. I mean, I feel like
0: I say design, it every day.
1: <laughs> design can make a difference and it, it sneaks up on people on how that happens, right? It, but going back to the house that Matthew grew up in, going back to the farm that I grew up on. All of these things, um, the utility of growing up on a farm and the resourcefulness and the the integrity of materials, growing up in unusual spaces that unlocked possibilities, going to an amazing cathedral that just makes you question structure, space, and time. These are all moments that design has an impact on our bodies. And I think as, as architecture students, as architects, as designers, and even as just people who inhabit all of these spaces, just the general public, design can change the world.
2: And I think it's especially important, you know. And I I can't say this enough. If the buses that we design, they impact so many kids, kids that have never seen anything transformed like that, and I, that makes me feel really good. Is that they have an opportunity uh, to really experience something that is hopefully the first of many in their in their lives. But you know, I think that a lot of people don't get to experience those types of transformations or those incredible spaces or, or you know, whatever. And I think, you know, we're lucky as architects because we understand that, that amazing power that it has on us. And if we can just influence that a little bit to people, that's, I think, really the, the key thing that we're trying to do.
1: We try to focus on those wow moments, Mark. Like when a student walks onto the STEM bus and they see a cabinet get unlocked from a rail and slide up through the bus and it starts to transform how all the cabinets work and the arrangement and things, secret compartments flip open and things flip down and things hook on. You know, they start to, it starts to unlock that creative potential of, wow, I've never seen anything like that. And hopefully it's inspiring young engineers and architects and artists and creative people um, to, to go on and do great things and to push this, push these boundaries even further.
2: And I really appreciate all the great things you say, but I still don't think we've done enough. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think we've done a good enough job yet. We
1: need to do more.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's the mark of a legacy maker. Yeah, the, the, um, I believe you as well. I believe the same thing, that architects uh, can change the world. I, I would go one step further. I believe that, that design and architects can save the world. Uh, because there are a lot of really messed up pieces to our world. Um, And there's always been, right? Throughout history, there's been big, big, huge problems, but we've never been in a time, and this goes back to what we talked about earlier. We've never lived, there's never been a time in the history of the, the earth where all of these things are coming together, right? And there's there's the, the these tools that we're using to communicate with one another. There's technology that will allow us to use our collective knowledge, problem solving skills as architects and designers and focus them on one specific problem, right? And solve that problem, right? And you can't do that without thousands of people coming together, all putting their collective spin on that. Um, and that's a very doable thing with technology today. That will happen. It's just a matter of whether we, you know, focus on making it happen. Um, and so, yes, I totally believe that architects and design can change the world. Um, and uh, and I'm glad that you're out there saying that. I'm, I'm glad you're out there doing that. I'm very glad that you're out there building STEM buses and doing the modern architecture that you're doing because it is inspiring the next generation. Of all ages and all races and all demographics, they're all being exposed to what design and architecture is in engineering and inspiring them to, to, to do great things, to, to be part of that, right? That we can plant the, the seed and they can go build, build the rest of it. You know, grow, grow the tree, if wanna use the right analogy. Um, very, very inspiring. The work that you're doing, this conversation is super inspiring. I, I, I can go on for another hour. We um, could too if
2: you want. <laughs> yeah.
0: we, well, can, Mark, we, can, we can do other episodes anytime. I'm happy. I love talking to you guys.
1: Mark, we've enjoyed being part of your own personal little uh, design revolution here on Entree Architect. Um, I think that's, that's, that's your step in changing the world of design, and you're just glad to be part of it.
0: What would you say? Thank you. Thank <laughs> you for that. Um, what would you say is one thing that a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow? Architects will go. To nomi.design dot and they'll see your work. Um, and the reason I brought up the business side is because I want people to understand that there's a whole business structure behind what they see on that website, because that's important. Um, what would you do? What would you say in terms of, of giving some advice? Of what that architect or uh, listeners can can do today to to build a better business?
2: I'll go first. I I think that I think you have to look past the the next day or the next month or the next quarter or the next year. I think you have to look, you may be unsure whether you'll be around in in one year or next quarter or whatever it is, but I think you have to look past it because you have to plan like that. You You have to, you have to, you have to, things don't happen quickly. You know, I, one of the reasons why I like the shop so much is that we can design and implement things and see the results rather quickly. Whereas when we do buildings, it can take, you know, between one and three years, you know, and so I need that sort of that feedback loop on the design part of it, but I think you know that was a long time that that took a lot of you know projecting out in the future and saying this is kind of what I want to do and I think um I think you always have to focus on design, right That's like the key thing is now I'll, I'll keep harping away at this is people may not understand what architects do, and if they don't, then they need to understand that we're we Make beautiful things that we make things that are 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 well thought out, are, that flow well. That you know, hopefully, we all do that, um, and that's what you have to sell. And I think that's you know, you just can't do that thinking on a day to day basis.
1: And I would wrap it up, Mark, by saying uh, for small firms out there, think big, have fun, work hard, and put a little wow in everything you do.
0: <laughs> Melody. Ferris Jackson and Matthew Brooks are their name. The firm's name is Nomi Design. Actually, before we go, can you share how the the name came about? What's the, what's the idea behind the name?
2: Well, this is pretty interesting. I, <laughs> it's there, a good
1: question. There,
2: there may be other people, other firms that that uh, disagree with this process, but uh, when we first came up with the name, um, we actually started a Google document, and uh, we were the the first thing was, it can't be my name. I refused uh, for this company to be Brooks Architects or Brooks and Associates or whatever, because I think the key thing that I want to put out there is it's not about me. It's about everybody, right? It's about a group of people, right? If it's just me sitting here in an office, maybe then it might be about Brooks Architecture, right? But that's not what it's about. It's about a group of people and I'm not going to be around. You know, I hope this thing lives past me. Yeah. And I hope that it somebody else can take it and kind of do something else with it in the future. But we started this, uh, this Google document and we, we were just brainstorming and finding words. And um, I mean, we must've had, I think we had a six page Google document with names and then sort of meanings underneath because we felt like, and I think even Melody and I and the rest of the group, we, we, we do this today, you know, the branding and sort of, I'm going to call it myth building of the company is really important, especially when you're starting out, you kind of have to build this myth and myth has to come from your branding. And so that name is really important. It had to be the, the, the seed of everything else. And uh, we finalized on Nomi because it's sort of funny uh, in Italian, it means many names, right? Uh, Or it means names, right? Uh, and we had been through several different name changes over the past <laughs> years. And then I think uh, in Japanese, it, it's actually a wood tool. It's a, it's a saw or a chisel. I forget which it is. Um, so it had sort of like these multiple meetings that we knew something about, right? That we could tell a story about. Yeah. And I think that story is kind of about that, that myth building in the beginning. So we finalized on that.
0: I love it. I love it. So Melody, Farris Jackson, Matthew Brooks, Nomi Design. Uh, you can check out all the work that they do. Very inspirational website. Go check out their branding on the website so you can sort of understand what we've been talking about for the past hour. Um, nomi.design is a website. Nomi.design, N-O-M-I. N-O-N-I-M-I uh, design, dot design. Um, this has been a very inspiring conversation for me. And I know the listeners feel the same way. Um, Your firm is very inspiring. I appreciate you for the work that you're doing, and not only are you out there doing it, right? Because you could be doing it in Kentucky and nobody knows anything about what you're doing, but you're out there showing the world what you're doing, and then you're out there talking about what you're doing, and you're talking about why you're doing it, and you're talking about legacy, and that's really important that you're out there talking about those things, Uh, not only for your firm, but for the profession, because the profession needs to hear these things and be inspired and give give the permission to do the things that you do at Nomi. So thank you for that, and thanks for coming by here and sharing that with me at Entree Architect Podcast. Thank you, Mark. Thank you very much, Mark. If you liked this episode of Entree Architect Podcast, please share a rating, write a review, share a link with a friend. That's how Entree Architect has grown, to serve thousands of architects just like you. Please share a rating, write a review, share a link to this episode with a friend. I'd appreciate it. Links to all our sponsors and all the resources we discussed today are available at the show notes for this episode found at entrearchitect.com/slash podcast. Entre Architect is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network. It's the network dedicated to architects, engineers, and construction pros. Listen and subscribe to all the shows at Gable Media at Gablemedia.com. That's G A B L Media.com. Go check it out. We have, I think, 13 podcasts over there now. Gablemedia.com. And before we wrap up, a special thank you to our partners at Graphisoft for helping our community of architects make the transition to BIM with Archicad software. Go now to graphisoft.com slash US slash and see how Graphisoft is positioning to help make your architecture firm a success. Visit graphisoft.com slash US slash Entree Architect to learn more. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Entree Architect Podcast. My name is Mark Arlapage. Love, learn, and go share what you know. Are you NCARB certified yet? Join the network of over 45,000 architects who have the NCARB certificate to expand your professional reach. By becoming NCARB certified, you are demonstrating that you've met the national standards for licensure, a qualification that can be an important factor for firms when hiring and promoting. Certificate holders have a streamlined path to apply for a reciprocal license in all 55 U.S. jurisdictions, as well as access to an extensive library of free continuing education courses. Learn more today at NCARB.org.